Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network servicing the culture web. If you want to advertise to nerds who like art, books, movies, music, books... Did I mention books? Go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com. It's an advertising network for art nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just okay, one time. Guys. Here we go again. This <laughs> right. is it. This is other people. This is inherently peripheral. This is assuming you like books. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate that. My guest today is Chris Terry. He's got a debut story collection out. It's called How to Carry Bigfoot Home. It's available now from Red Hen Press. Uh, I should add that Chris uh, is also a very skilled musician, an accomplished uh, bass guitarist. We'll talk about that. You'll hear us talk about that. We get into music a little bit in the conversation. I don't think we talk all that but uh, all that much about music, meaning like actual pieces of music or even the playing of music. Maybe we do. We talk about like musicians. I can't remember. I just want to say as a kind of preemptive disclaimer that I, I don't think that music is a good thing to talk about. Just listen to the song. Listen to the album. Don't tell me about the song. Don't tell me about the album. Don't talk about the jam. Uh, please don't even use that word. Uh, don't use the word gig. Don't describe the jam. Just play the music. Or not. It's a hard thing to talk about without sounding dumb. Or annoying. Sports is the same way. And you know, there's that whole thing. It's like a... It's an activity of the body. It's the whole point. It has nothing to do with the mind. It's, it defies articulation at the verbal level. Just watch it, enjoy it, listen to it, experience it. I love that part of the jam where the, uh, at the gig when the, don't. 
My guest once again is Chris Terry. His story collection is called uh, How to Carry Bigfoot Home. This is his debut, ladies and gentlemen, How to Carry Bigfoot Home. It's available now from Red Hen Press. He was out here uh, in Los Angeles uh, for a uh, musical uh, job. Gets hired to play sessions. He's that good. So he was out here in Los Angeles doing that. He uh, took some time to come over here. He was a little bit hungover. I think we talk about that as well. We had a good talk. I enjoyed meeting Chris. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here he is, folks. Chris Terry and his story collection one more time is called How to Carry Bigfoot Home. Uh, probably till two, probably till two, but that's, you know, that's pretty, pretty, pretty late East Coast time. Yeah. Where are you, where are you from on the East Coast? I'm from, uh, from New York. I, 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 I now live in New Jersey, but, uh, okay. but I was in Brooklyn for 12 years and then had two kids. So we moved to the town where everybody moves to when they have two kids. Which is where? Brooklyn. Uh, Maplewood, New Jersey. You go to Maplewood. Yeah. Suburbs? It's the suburbs. But, you know, they call it Brooklyn West now. It's all so, it's all just like it's just, yeah, it's moving all, out. Yeah, I think everybody on my street, you move in, you're like, hey, so uh, where were you living in Brooklyn? <laughs> you know, and they, they, say, they say. Is it nice? Is it slower? Do you like it? I mean, as a family man? I, I love it. You know, um, my wife was really into doing the move, um, and she sort of pushed for it. Uh, and I didn't think I would like it as much. And now she's the one that's because, you know, she commutes. I work from home. And so she commutes and she's just like the commute, particularly Penn Station. is just kept killing her. Yeah. You know, so um, I sort of found my inner handyman. Man, I've been like, you know, renovating the house. We've got a hundred year old house. That's what you do. You move out there. You buy a hundred year old house. Everybody, first thing they do is renovate a kitchen. Right. You know, and so I sort of taught myself how to do some of that stuff. So I'm, you're a man. It's kind of, I, I feel I man. couldn't fucking do I that if like- I tried. <laughs> That'd be a disaster. You do it. It's all on YouTube, man. It's Is all it? on YouTube, yeah. Oh, no, I don't have the confidence. <laughs> I can't, I couldn't like build a birdhouse. Right, right. Uh, but you like you you know you have tattoos. You're a musician. You're a bass guitarist I professionally. Am. Yes. So uh, it seems to me like you would be the one who would miss Brooklyn. You'd think so, you know. I mean, and I do. I think mostly what I miss is the food, you know. Mm. Uh, it's just, you know, you can't... You don't have as much access in Maplewood. You don't have as much access. I mean, it's it's great. And, you know, I'm sure there's somebody moving there probably right now that's going to open some sort of uh, handlebar mustached... I was uh, going to say, wait, uh, farm to table place. any I minute know. now. I think it's going to happen. Um, it's really... it's It really is amazing, you know, like... Uh, the New York Times does like one article on Maplewood and then your property values go up by like a hundred grand. That's great. You know, so it's, it's, uh, I feel like we made a really good move and the kids are super happy and good schools. Yeah. And I can get some, you actually get some writing done and you know, I have a studio space now for like 12 years. My studio space was the size of, uh, you know, a very, very small desk. So, uh, you know, I feel like I can get done what I need to and then sit out on my back deck, you know, uh, and, uh, and enjoy the, Enjoy the the uh, the quiet, the suburban living. Yeah, I tell you, there's something about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you leave all that, you fly across the country to Los Angeles. Right. Uh, how old are you? I'm uh, 45. Okay, so you're 45. Yeah. You show up in LA. Yeah. You go into a music studio. Right. You're three hours ahead. Right. You're playing music. <laughs> yeah. We know what that's like. We yeah. know what that involves. We know what those people do. Right. <laughs> exactly. You're out until essentially five in the morning. Right. How much did you drink? <sighs> Man. You know, here's the thing. I think I, I woke up hungover not only because... Um, you had two beers? I had, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, look, look, we're both fathers. You know, let's not kid ourselves. If I don't, if I don't have a gig in New York, I'm in bed by 930. You right. Know? Um, and then I'm like, you know, I'm looking at my clock. I'm saying to my wife, you know, it's 930. It's getting late. Better, better hit the sack. <laughs> you know, because uh, my kids get me up at like 6 a.m. But there's many, many nights in New York where I'm playing... 
and I get home at like two and the kids get up at five thirty, and I have to, you know, you just got to do it. I got to do it. You just, you know, you just sort of do it and <clears throat> maybe catch a nap in the afternoon. But, uh, you know, I think last night, you know, uh, I was at a staying with a friend of mine who has an amazing studio. He's in a town. I'm out in a uh, place called Laverne. Okay. You know, out sort of. I don't even know where that is. 210. <laughs> 210 somewhere out. I think I've heard of Laverne. Right. And, uh, I like the name Laverne. I know, right? And he, uh, he, he's he got good taste in wine. My taste in wine is like comes from a box, generally. Right. And so we were drinking good wine, and I woke up with a headache, and I think that's the good wine. You know? it's, it's, yeah, you got to drink the shit wine. It's, you drink, if you don't want a hangover, you got to <laughs> drink Actually, it's the, the opposite. If, you, if I drink shitty wine, I get a really bad hangover. <laughs> right, right. If I See, drink, but if you drink really good wine, right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's all just like some sort of placebo, but I think if you drink really good wine, hangover tends to be less. Yeah. I mean, maybe I've just been drinking shit for so well, dude, long. You were on an airplane. You're <laughs> exactly. dehydrated. Exactly. Any, you know, you drank alcohol. You barely were. You're getting any sleep. But, exactly. Uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed, like in the past couple of months with the newborn, is that you know I used to complain about getting five hours of sleep in a night. Right now, five hours is gold. What was right. I complaining about? Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a whole thing, man. I, I uh, you know, also having two kids, uh, just a little bit older than yours, um, it's it's. The sleep thing just becomes <laughs> you just a get drug. Used to it. Exactly. Well, but exactly. Yeah, this is this is the thing. I think this is the point that I'm driving at, and it, it could expand beyond fatherhood and beyond sleep, um, and it could even touch on uh, writing or making art, which I guess is the most uh, germane thing to this show. But you, you just do it. Mm-hmm. You have two kids. You got to stay up, or you got to feed the kid. You're not going to sleep. What are you going to do? Right. And it's amazing what you can do when you have no choice. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's definitely made me, fatherhood has made me more uh, together in terms of getting shit done than when I need to, you know, especially when it comes to learning somebody's music or something that's like a dead deadline related, you know, it's literally, you know, here's, and I'm sure you're the same way, you know, uh, here's my window of time. Right. And if I don't get it done, it's not getting done. Right. You know, and whereas before I'd be like, you know, well, I'll get it done 20 <laughs> minutes before the gig. I'll listen to the shit in the car, you know? <laughs> it's right. Like, it's right. Like, I, I don't have that luxury anymore. Can you do and, that? Can you, can you listen to something once and know it? Uh, it sort of depends. You know, I get, I get hired a lot to play, um, as a bass player, I get hired to play with like, uh, you know, famous New York jazz musicians that nobody's ever heard of. Um, so a lot of that times I'm sort of known as a guy that, uh, that gets hired to play difficult, generally difficult sort of music in terms of if it's a jazz gig, I mean, I do pop and rock and play whatever pays the bills, obviously and tours with, you know, pop musicians and, but, but more or less I get hired for like the sort of, you know, a little bit tougher bass gigs. So most of the time, I have to be really, really strict about like um, about my time in terms of terms of learning the music and all that sort of stuff. Like recently, a few months back, I got flown into flown to Russia to fill in for somebody, and there's no re- oftentimes there's no rehearsal. But where? Like what, filling in for whom? Uh, just for like a jazz like a jazz artist from oh, okay. from Canada. So he couldn't his bass player couldn't make this gig in Russia. So they fly me in. So it's and, and there's no rehearsal. It's a big concert in Russia for him. Um, and it's a couple thousand people at the gig, you know, watching the gig and I'm up there playing music for the first time Damn. generally. So, no so it's, yes. Yeah, so it's basically, I have to, I have to like plan my attack of that, especially with kids. I mean, a father, I'm like, okay, we're two weeks out from the gig. I know that I have to have this music together to the point where I can walk on stage. I don't have to have it memorized, but I need to have it under my fingers to the point where I have to w- walk on stage and play some fairly difficult music without any rehearsal. 
So it's a combination of listening and you do a sound check. Yeah, so we'll do a sound check, run stuff in sound check. I'll generally have things where I'll say, okay, hey, that tune, uh, you know, the bridge section of that tune, can we run that? That's really kind of squirrely, you know. Oh yeah, they'll say, you know, then the guy say, oh, you know, it's uh, it doesn't go there like it does on the recording. It does this, so we'll like talk things down. Okay. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, okay, in terms of like playing gigs, like you go play, uh, you know, a show in New York City, mm-hmm. you have two kids, right. you're usually going to bed early, right. and then you have a show, you go on at like what, nine thirty, ten. you play right. until one in the morning. Right. Adrenaline's enough. You you get up on stage and the adrenaline takes over and you're fine. Yeah, I mean I'm pretty pretty good. The hard part I'm finding is the drive home back to <laughs> the, the, the 25 down. minutes. That you know the 25 minute drive it takes me to get back home. That like last mile before the exit, I'm like nodding off and you know I'm like <laughs> having to like pick up a Red Bull before I leave just to like <laughs> make it home. You know, whereas before I'd just get on the subway, I'd be back in Brooklyn in you know 10 15 minutes. So. It's uh, it's been a bit of an adjustment that way, you know. So how did you get into this? Uh, playing music? Yeah. Oh, man. My dad was, and my parents are both musicians. My dad is an orthodontist, but he played in a band when I was young called the Holy Molars that was made up of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even shitting you, that's what it was called. <laughs> uh, he played saxophone in a band, and my mom played piano, and... It was always sort of around, and you know, I played piano for a little while, uh, a bunch of stuff. And then, you know, when I was in high school, I I was playing saxophone, and like, you know, it just wasn't in high school. I wanted to meet girls, you know, so I was just like, I got to pick an instrument where like I'm going to meet some always, chicks. They always exactly. love the bass player, exactly. So I, you know, and then the thing is, I showed up to a band rehearsal. I remember I bought a guitar. I was probably sixteen. And I showed up to like this band rehearsal. We're putting a band together, you know, all my friends show up and there's 10 other guitar players and nobody wants to play bass because nobody knows what the fuck bass players do. So I was just like, well, I could just, you know, I could play bass. So I went back to the store. I traded in the guitar I had bought for a bass guitar. And uh, I was probably practicing eight hours a day for two weeks later. It just, it just consumed me. It took me, it took me over. Why? I think I, I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, I don't know what I mean. I'm I'm a bit of a, you know, I think like anybody who's an artist, um, writer, all art, I think you need to have some type of uh, obsessive quality to yourself in order to put up with all the shit that you got to put up with anyways. Choosing that career is, 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 uh, is enough of a a statement already, you know? So you need to, you need to uh, have a bit of an obsessive 
streak to stay with anything. Because right, like most kids, you try to teach them uh, or give them piano lessons or music lessons of any kind, and it just it's like a a couple of months of excitement, and then it kind of peters mm-hmm. out, and then they just find it annoying. Yeah, I don't know what it is. You know, I, I taught uh, at a university in Canada for a long time, um, and I had a lot of bass students, and I could always spot within like five seconds the ones that came through that were going to do it for and, real. And how did you know? Just like in the questions that they asked, you know, I think that that's, I think in learning anything, um, at least for me, it's always about answering questions and how do I get better at this particular aspect of whatever it is. Um, it's the same way I approached writing when I started writing professionally, uh, or, or, you know, I had always written my whole life, but when I decided that I wanted to, uh, to sort of like take it more seriously, uh, I treated it like learning an instrument. I found my favorite writers, you know, and uh, and studied with them privately. Um, and who were and who were they? Well, the first one I did it with, actually, I think you've had on your show, uh, is Roy Kesey. Uh, I was a huge fan of his of something I had read in. Uh, um, uh, where did I read it? In uh, McSweeney's, I think. Yeah, his first story was published in McSweeney's, like six, I want to say something like that, really early. Um, and it floored me. I was like, I, I didn't, didn't know you could do this with a story, you know? And so when I moved to New York and, um, you know, when I first moved to New York, I didn't have a ton of gigs. So, uh, I started writing, uh, I mean, I had always written, but I started taking it more seriously and started working out my, you know, that was in 2002, I think. And started working, working it out and getting in, getting really deep into the writing side of things. And I tracked him down cause I remembered that story and, he was living in Peru at the time, and I studied with him privately uh, on and off for about a year and a half. Just like sending him stories? Sending him stories, and then he would send back critiques, and then we'd do a Skype session talking about the story. So in a way, it was like I was doing my own – before I ever went back and got my MFA in, in writing, uh, I was doing my own sort of MFA. I did the same thing with Jim Shepard for a while. Um, people that I had like a connection with personally and that that uh, that – I wanted to learn from and they taught me huge amounts. And how did they, how did you get them to do that? Um, well, I paid them a little bit of money, Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, and it's the same way I work with even today when I work with writing students or whatever, you know, it's just like a, I say flat fee for a story and then we go back and forth and then the next story, they pay me the ne- the money and then back and forth. So it's kind of, it's kind of been, it was really cool. It worked out really well, but I just went about it the only way I knew how. I mean, when you're learning an instrument, you just, you're sitting and you're, you're in an audience many times and you see a bass player or whatever it is instrument you play, at least for me. And I'd be like, I can't do that in my playing, but I would really love to be able to. So I would just approach a person after many times they were coming through town on a tour or whatever. And I would ask for a lesson and I took a lot of lessons in a hotel, in hotel rooms and, and, uh, that it's cool that that now happens where I'm going through and students will approach and say, Hey, can, are you in town for a couple of days? Can I take a lesson or whatever? You know? So it was only the only way I knew how after, you know, taking, you know, a lot, many years to learn how to play an instrument. That's cool. Yeah. So I sort of applied it to learning how to write. Then I went back to school and, you know, <laughs> got your MFA. Got my MFA and, you know, did that, that whole thing. Well, but to, to, but to do both and then to, I, I would imagine like the two inform one another, like things you learned as a bass player and a musician probably helped you as a writer and vice versa. I think, I think compositionally it's, uh, it's a real interesting cross crossover between the two disciplines. I think, I think that, um, 
one of the things that writing informed my music in a really interesting way, like when writing really started to sort of take off for me and I was getting things published and it felt, I felt like I was getting somewhere. I, I, I was all, uh, um, I was in the middle of doing this new record. Um, and I was writing a lot of music and in the old days and because living in New York, I, I'm lucky enough to play with some really amazing, great musicians who, you know, I would write a tune and I would hand it to them and say, here guys, here's the tune, you know, and they would make it sound amazing, even if it was a piece of shit. <laughs> you know? Right. And so uh, I was a lazy composer, I would say. I was a lazy composer, I, I admit it. Um, and so what happened with this new record, and I had just been through, um, I hadn't done the MFA yet, but I was really getting deep into revision and, and all this sort of stuff writing-wise, and it leaked over into my into my composition in a way that was like, you know what, this fucking bridge is terrible in this song. You know, this, this, this is unacceptable. You know, these three notes, no matter how hard I try, are not going to go together. So let's revise. Let's go back and let's make this the best possible we can. You know, why, what, why is it so hard to come to grips with the fact that it's just a lot of fucking work? I know. I know. Exactly. And, <laughs> it's and the hardest thing to just like admit or something. Totally. Totally. And I think that is a little bit shrouded in music more so than it is in writing. I think because we all write, we all, you know, most hopefully you know a large portion of us read and 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 i think that uh people have a better sense of what it is they enjoy reading and what they don't whereas music especially when you're playing jazz or any kind of improvised music can sort of be obscured in a lot of sort of uh you know dancing around the topic <laughs> in yeah. other words you know yeah so uh, you it's know, looser it's looser and it's like you know i've always envied musicians because like you can write a song in a day mm -hmm. and it can be great right there's a speed to it. And then there's also a speed to the audience. Right. You know, it's very quick to the vein music mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. very powerful that way. Whereas, you know, reading is uh, slow food, right. which has its own benefits and right. its own virtues. Mm -hmm. But, um, I guess I envy that speed sometimes. Yeah. How can you not when you're grinding away on a Yeah. Novel? I think for me, it was always, it was always, uh, the cool thing about right, you know, composing music is that you get that feeling all the time when you start a new tune that you get when you have a new idea for a novel or whatever you're like, you know, in the first, the first, uh, maybe 20 pages come like really easy and really quick. And you just like, you get up in the morning and you're like, Jesus, I can't believe it. I got it. I got it. This is it. You know? And then it's another four years before you really actually got it. You yeah. know? Um, but music has that sort of feeling, you know, in, in a lot of ways you compose the first eight bars and you're like, this is the most brilliant fucking thing ever. And then you're like, what am I going to do next? <laughs> and that takes, you know, weeks right. of weeks of work and all that stuff. So there's definitely like a lot of crossover, but you can see the light at the end of the tunnel in a song way sooner than you can see it. Absolutely. In, you know, it's, yeah. you're working towards it and you can see that light. Mm -hmm. Especially I, if you're like, there's an interesting aspect, especially if you're like, like me, I have, I've had the same band in terms of doing my own music for a long time. So I know the people that I'm writing for musically um and that can be really sort of self-assuring like uh, self-assuring like imagine if you knew every reader that you were writing for you're like i actually do and you're and, 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 yeah me, me too all four of them <laughs> exactly you're like man my mom is gonna love this sense <laughs> you know so um it's 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 it, it gives you a bit of a cushion in terms of like comfort because you're you're like you know that you're in good hands regardless if you make a, a bad decision or not because they're going to make it sound great. And then what about improv you know improvisation because jazz music obviously um, that's the heart of it. Mm -hmm. And do you carry that over to your writing? Are there things that you think about like you know is, is your writing uh, Kerouacian in that right. way? You know <laughs> right. Um, 
You know, I was I was just thinking about this the other day. It's um, I think all gr- great art is about choice in a way. You know what I mean? And I think you can teach yourself for years. And you know, music is essentially a long time of teaching yourself where to put your hands and how to move your muscles and all that sort of stuff. But when it comes time to actually play the note, then there's a choice there. Uh, it's the same. It's the same way with writing. I think. Uh, you know, the choices on the page are what fascinate me. You know, um, in reading other writers, and then I, I you know, also. Uh, in my own writing, you know, the, it, that is where the art for me, whether it's the no, musical notes on the page or the or the writing on the page or the paint on the canvas, you know, to me, that's where it all comes. The rubber meets the road is about choice. And that choice ultimately is an improvisation. Right. I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's ba- like, based on some sort of knowledge. Right? It, I, but I feel like the revision. I mean, I guess like when you're putting together a jazz number, mm-hmm. you are doing much of the same that you would do when you write a short story or if you're writing a longer piece of fiction you write it you revise it you noodle with it you tinker with it but then as a musician when you get up on stage particularly in a live context you then improvise within the framework that you very carefully built absolutely that's correct absolutely okay yeah so it's not like you're just like improvising as you, you know, it's like this. Everyone, no. That's the thing about it. It's very tempting to think like, oh, I'll just improvise. I'll let it be. I'll let it flow. It, yeah. People want it to be easier than it actually is. Everybody, everybody sort of like a lot of times a general sort of thought about jazz. And that was a really well put. It is, it is improvising on a very specific composed form generally, unless it's free jazz. And then it's, you know, what we <laughs> in New York call scratch and sniff, which is like, you know, where they're scratching their strings and, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, I once heard somebody say there's two kinds of free jazz, scratch and sniff and fire in a pet shop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, it's um, so th- that notwithstanding, modern, comp- you know, composition jazz wise definitely comes from is informed by a form and a, you know, uh, it may not be a t- traditional jazz, you know, uh, 32 bar form or whatever. It's uh, it's whatever the composer sort of has decided um, and a lot of that stuff these days um, is being informed by like radio head tunes and you know simpler sort of harmonic structures, but also um, you can also have a lot of rhythmic sort of things going on too that are that are there can be a rhythmic form, you know, a whole bunch of different sort of cool things. Who's happening. doing it today? Because you know, like we always like I feel like jazz, you know, um, you know, had its golden age in the mm-hmm. 20th century, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, like that period, and you have your Louis Armstrong's and your Miles Davis's and your John Coltrane's mm-hmm. and Sidney Bechet's and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. it was popular music for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that changed with, uh, what rock and roll and yeah. everything else, hip hop. And now, uh, you know, it's like you ask somebody who a jazz musician is, they might throw out Wynton Marsalis. Right. Uh, yeah. who, who is doing it today? Who, who are the Miles Davis's and the John Coltrane's right. of today? They're guys in the, the in the, um, there are guys in the uh, throes of New York that most people probably haven't heard of. Yeah, so tell us. Um, there's so, so many great guys. I mean, uh, the drummer in my band, for instance, Dan Weiss, many people think that he's one of the guys that uh, they'll be writing about in 20 years, you know, that to change the instrument, you know. And to be able to play with that and watch him change the instrument as you're doing it is quite uh, – knowing that he's going to have this impact is sort of – is pretty awe-inspiring. Sure. Um there's uh, another guy in my band, Henry Hay, who who uh, is a really close dear friend of mine and uh, one of the best piano players in the world. And you know, he's on the last Bowie record. You know, you, you would never know it. Nobody knows who he is. 
you know, in terms of like David Bowie knows who he is. David Bowie knows who he is. <laughs> That's all that matters. That's all that matters. <laughs> you know, um, who else? Uh, there's guys in, in that have been slugging it out in New York for twenty thirty. New York years. is where it happens. New York's where it happens. That's the epicenter. Yeah, it has a it has an energy about it. It happens here to some extent, but not the way it does. No, not the way it does. What about New York. Orleans? Yeah, it's a different uh, it's a different kind of spicier thing in a way. I don't know how else to describe it. It's not like the intensity of New York. Like you show up in New York and man, my first few years, I just got my ass handed to me. It's just like you, you just, you have to come with such a level. Um, and you know, for me as a bass player, uh, drummers are like our closest, closest sort of, uh, love, you know, our closest sort of brotherly love is a, is a drummer. And just the level of drummers in New York city is just unequaled anywhere else. You know, I mean, I would show up at gigs and I'd be playing with guys that I had pictures of in my locker. You know, we're both playing a fifty dollar gig. You kept pictures. You kept pictures of jazz musicians. Yeah, I had pictures. I had a picture of Anton Fig, the drummer from the Late Night Show. You know, <laughs> and here I am playing. A gig, you know, I'm looking over and we're both doing a gig for fifty dollars. You played with uh, Paul Schaefer. I have. Yeah, you have. Yeah. What's yeah. he like? He's it's it's an amazing to watch him lead a band is un- unbelievable. He's got great chops. It's not so much. I mean, he's got great chops, but just his. You know, leading a band is is in itself uh, a, a learned skill, and he led arguably the busiest band. You know, for 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 however many years Dave did the, th- did the thing. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so uh, I did one gig with him, uh, with with Paul Schaefer, and just to like be directed by him in the way that he does, and to see how what it must be like behind the scenes for those guys every single day, um, was amazing. He has no time for no time for any questions basically it's like uh, okay that was a great take everybody um bass player uh, i want you to play something a little more 1956 um you know <laughs> martha and the vandals and i want you uh guitar player that thing that you're playing no don't go c sharp to a i want you to do this and this um and drummer just lay out a little bit on the bridge section okay everybody here we go one two and you're just like what the <laughs> you, <laughs> you know. better know who martha and the vandals you know. exactly you know I'm, I'm like racking my brain i couldn't right, even right. I could, you have to have I, mean, I think i just pulled that out of my ass i don't know i don't even remember what he said to me but yeah. it, was, it was one of these things where you're just like you know, uh, in awe of the speed in which he works yeah, and the speed at which he hears and the speed at which he expects you to hear. He's just been doing it a long time. He's been doing it a long time. Wow. It's amazing. To, it was amazing to watch. So yeah. wh- so you went to New York to try to like, uh, make it? I went to New York to try and make it. I was Canada's, one of Canada's busiest bass players and I, and I wanted, I wanted to get, which, <laughs> one of which Canada's means, which busiest means, bass players, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Which means, which means, which means, uh, which means, you know, I was gigging at least once a year. <laughs> Um, Where are you from in Canada? Uh, Calgary, Alberta. All right. That's I grew up there. That's sort of a Western. Yeah, kind of uh, like almost like a mid, like Western, verging on Midwest. But, all right. You know, not you liked Midwest. it. It's a great place to grow up. Happy childhood. Yeah, I was. I was uh, happy childhood. I I thought it was. You know, when I when I first went to school, my first time in a big American city was um, going to school in Boston. I went to Berkeley College of Music, and I was like. I think I was 19 or something, 18, 19. And my dad, we flew down there and my dad took me to the, to the school just to sort of check it out or whatever. And I was just, I thought Boston was the biggest city I'd ever seen in my life. I was just, this is like unbelievable. You know, Calgary was, Calgary at most is like nearly a hundred years old. You know, um, you can still probably, you know, you can still probably walk down the first road that was built you know, and and say, Hey, and there's the paint they used to paint on the, on the, you know, on the road. 
Um, but it sort of blew my mind, you know, and, uh, and now it's funny. Boston seems so small, to right. me. you know, you're like, and you live in New York for a long time. You go up like, God, this place is tiny. Yeah. 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 So, um, and, but you go to Berkeley college of music mm-hmm. to study the bass guitar. Yep. And mm-hmm. you, when did you pick up the bass guitar? So I was about 16, 17. So in two years you went from picking it up for the first time mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're in the best music college in the country. Yeah. When I picked it up, I, I started playing professionally, um, Four months later, in a band called Catch Twenty Two, that was a CCR tribute. Were you a, are you a prodigy? No, not at all. I'm just a guy that like works hard at it, and like I said, is a little bit obsessive about it. And you know, like I, you have OCD, probably. You Absolutely. like wash your hands ten times a day? No, but I definitely I'm in my head a lot, you know, um, you know, which uh, probably manifests itself. In, Does music yeah. get you out of your head? Uh, a little bit, I think. Right, you know, right now. Music seems like right now for me, for my music career, it feels like a bit of a job because I do it as a sideman. I haven't done my own record since 2011 because of the kids and, and it's just you need more time. And because of the writing career, um, that sort of seems to be satisfying that compositional aspect of my life um, in a really great, uh, somewhat new way, you know. So uh, it's also something you can do from home. Like writing is a more domestic thing. If you're playing music, you've got to be out traveling around. Yeah. And I still do that, you know, but it's harder. I do less I do less touring and more studio work now because of the kids and because my wife is often traveling too. So, I mean, I feel like fatherhood feels like one big check-in every single day. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, so what do you need to get done today? <laughs> well, you know, well, tomorrow I'm flying over to L.A. to do a thing. And, or this week I'm going to L.A. to do a thing. And she's like, well, when you get back, I have to go to Tennessee to do it. You know, and you're just like, it's just like one Big fucking arrange. You're just like arranging every moment. The of your logistics. Life. The logistics. Constant are just logistics. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know. Uh, so, uh, you know, I feel I feel that the the writing's a little bit easier to fit into that, maybe a little bit. And why did you shift? Like, what you just you just like to read. You wanted to give it a shot. Was there something that set you on the course to try to write your own fiction, like specifically? I think, I mean, I was always a reader. I was a super slow reader in, in, when I was a kid uh, to the point where I remember specifically when I was really young. Uh, and I, ca- I can't imagine they would do this today, but I must have been in like the fourth grade. And I remember that the teacher put up this book reading competition on the, on the, on the wall. And, and every kid in class was listed how many books they could read throughout the, throughout the course of the year. And, of course, there was some kid named Johnny who was just like whipping through you know, he taught himself how to speed read or something. And he was, you know, he had done like 241 books by the end of the year. And there I was, at the, I was dead last, you know, he was cheating. One, exactly. I, you know, one or two books. And I remember that that just scared me off of reading for a very long time. Um, and then in high school I started, you know, I, I, maybe I had some sort of learning disability or something in terms of like my, my speed at which I could read. And then I just hunkered down and I just, started doing it and falling in love with it and then through college getting into the classics and reading a lot and just like give me a couple of authors who really stuck to you oh man early ones what was i reading back then i don't even really remember trying to think you know i think i started out with like really bad pulp stuff when i was in high school because i was just so afraid of anything that maybe had any meat to it you know i think i was reading like clive clusler how do you say cussler cussler clive cussler no, you know, novels and stuff. Sure. Um, so, 
but you know, in a way, it's sort of like it's sort of like the Kenny G of books. You know what I mean? It's well, like, hey, it's man, like whatever, whatever gets people into the jazz. If you know? it may, yeah, I like Kenny G. <laughs> exactly. You know, makes me laugh. <laughs> totally. I mean, it makes me happy. You know, like I, I have, I literally have Kenny G on my computer, and like right. if I'm taking myself too seriously, I play it. <laughs> exactly. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> something, something my listeners might not know about me. Um, so you know, but, you know, went, what, went through that, and then and then I I just uh, kept. Um, I just kept going, and I got better and and more comfortable. Well, and, one of the yeah. things I was going to say, too, is that, you know, Clive Cussler, right. whatever genre writer you might be reading, whatever you might be reading, right. if it's fun and you like it, right. well, absolutely. Keep, well, you know, who gives a shit? I know, exactly. And I remember a friend of mine saying one time, I was like, oh, and, you know, I was like, oh, Kenny G, God, if I hear him play any of that <laughs> pseudo-bluesy shit again, I'm just going to lose my fucking Is mind. Kenny G reviled in the jazz oh, community? Reviled. There's a really great, you should look for it online, there's a really great, um, you can find it online, a really great a letter that Pat Metheny wrote to um, his reviled version of, um, uh, uh, what is it? the one where he did, where he oh, superimposed himself playing over top of... Uh, uh, um, Louis Armstrong. Okay. And it's just like, you know, like in the video, there's like a black, like a black and white screen with him soloing over top of, uh, like, you know, arguably one, <laughs> of, one of the greatest jazz, jazz songs ever made. And uh, Kenny G, uh, um, Pat Metheny wrote this like rebuttal, like two or three page rebuttal that's just like, I think one of the quotes is like, if I hear you play your pseudo jazz bluesy shit again, <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. You know, so, uh, but, you know, so I remember saying that and a friend of mine saying, hey, you know, uh, jazz, as with literary fiction, I think, you know, we're talking to a small portion of the population. So I think whatever gets somebody to that point, I mean, it's up to them to sort of make the leaps and the connections and sort of go down the rabbit hole, as it were. You know what I mean? It was up to me to start reading Clive Cussler novels and work my way through many years uh, to, uh, you know, uh, Homer or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's like it's – it. Uh, the person has to do the work, but whatever sets them on that path, I think, is is legitimate. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Um, when it comes to music, I, I guess it's, this, I mean, it's maybe not quite the same for me when it comes to talking about writing, but one thing I find very difficult to do is to talk about music. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I find it hard when I'm listening to two people talk about music, describing right. a song. Right. Uh, do you ever run into that? I mean, I mean, it's like, it's almost like just listen to the song. Right. Right. I'll just play you what I'm, you know, what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, or when I hear people talking about riffs and jams, like I start to, there's something about it that and makes my skin crawl. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's like that part of that song where you jam on the, and like, Oh God, right, you know, like right. I don't understand. And it's hard for me to kind of access. Right. Uh, is there something about writing and the specificity that you can arrive at with language that maybe, um, lets you flex muscles that you can't with music and, and maybe vice versa. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think so. Maybe I think, I think what, um, I mean, one of the things, you know, I had a teacher say to me, you know, you and I were talking about revision. He said, you know, you have to learn to love revision, you know, in a way that, that all great writing is, you know, I would say well over 80% revision, you know, um, and you need to learn to fall in love with that. So I think that's one of the things that, that I fell in love with about writing and like I said before, leaked over into my music sort of unexpectedly. Um, and I think that there's something about maybe getting it right, although a story never sort of feels finished, but something about getting it right that, that feels more specific than maybe music because 
you know, I may write a tune, and like you said, it may sound, it may be the form of the tune, but every single night it's going to sound slightly different, or the band's going to take it in a different way, or we're going to, you know, push certain aspects, or there may be something that becomes part of the tune over the course of a tour that was never actually written, but it's just be like, you know, here's the part we get to where you do this thing, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think maybe this, maybe the the the, the specific finality of trying to trying to put something together writing wise feels feels really specific specific to me which is nice so when you and okay so when you get to uh berkeley college of Mm -hmm. music Mm -hmm. early uh as you were kind of setting out on this path did you go in thinking like i'm going to be a jazz musician or did you go in thinking like i'm going to be in a rock band my goal was always to be the best bass player in the world that i possibly that was shortly edited to be the best bass player i could possibly be um, that's ambitious though yeah well you know you're young yeah swing for the fences <laughs> exactly exactly um so uh yeah you know i went i went in just wanting to absorb as much as i possibly can i remember a really great thing from my very first day and i always tell uh students this um guy sat us down and was like maybe 20 of us in the class he goes okay welcome to berkeley college of music I'm just warning you from here on in, you will never hear music the same way again, which, which these days I kind of maybe makes me a little sad in a way because I can't hear music the way other people do because it's too, there's, I'm analyzing it all the time. You're deconstructing. Deconstructing. There's aspects of music that, um, there's aspects of music that, uh, drive me a little crazy only because it's because of the of the time i've spent learning it you know um which rock bands I, out there are doing a good job which rock like bands which rock there? bands like musically are you like wow they really know their shit uh radiohead i'd say it's one of the biggest influences i'd say in, in modern Why? jazz music right now just because um i think the way that they're able to commit to a vibe does that make sense i guess so um uh the way that the that the you know one of the calling cards technically harmonically that is great about Radiohead is their use of common tones and the way he sings the same note a lot all the times a lot of times while the harmony is moving underneath rhythmic rhythmic even though their drummer is not the greatest drummer in the world he's able to come up with like interesting parts that sort of push the tunes who's doing the compositions for this? isn't johnny greenwood is that his name uh, you know i don't even know i just okay. sort of assume they get together and really work the shit out they probably you know? do but it, like i want to say greenwood if i'm remembering his name right, right. he does like movie scores and and you know, he's got like a more right. of a like a broader career beyond just radiohead where right. i feel like he's doing mm-hmm. um composing there's somebody in there doing it you know it's the same thing if you listen to uh if you if you listen to God, this is my 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 fog wine brain thinking but um uh you know um queen you know i love queen take a look at queen i have been getting more and more enthusiastic about my love for queen the older i get like when i listen to them i'm like this is the greatest fucking rock band ever like no who had a lead singer like that yeah and not even just the once and that's what what people hear initially you know the lead singing it's amazing it's unbelievable but you know who did all the all the uh all the real heavy lifting was the guitar player in terms of compositionally, in terms of in the studio, in terms of the history from what I know of the band. And you listen to what's going on, all that orchestration shit, all that stuff. That was, for, for, yeah, I can't remember the name of the guitar player because I'm, I'm brain dead right now. But, um, you know, he, generally a band like that or like a Radiohead or something 
some a band that has some sort of thing that takes something to the next level or has great influence seem to be thrust upon it from the outside many influences you know sort of influencing the way that they play tends to be the result of one person in the band who's incredibly gifted okay because i was going to say i was going to say like when you're in this is another critical distinction between writing fiction or writing anything and writing music Mm -hmm. and performing music in a band and is is the group context Mm -hmm. and that's difficult and there's a reason why bands don't usually last all that long absolutely it's like you're being it's like you're in a relationship with multiple people and everybody's got agendas and egos and creative visions and you're trying to balance all that right and there are different levels of talent right you have people um, like you say, in a band who are more talented than the other people mm-hmm. in the band, there's usually one person who has the most talent, right? Who's mm-hmm. the leader, right? Exactly. Um, and but you... oftentimes that person is not the front man. I guess with Queen is what I'm saying. You know, is that the person, the genius, it's behind the bass the band. player? It's exactly. the bass. It's always the bass <laughs> we, player. Oh, man, we got we control the whole <laughs> shit. That's right. Anything goes down, we have to, we have a note we got to say about it. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, who was, who was, um, you know, who, the police, you know what I mean? Sting or was it, uh, you know, Stuart, Stuart Copeland. Yeah. You know, so they, but they didn't, they clashed. Stuart Copeland and Sting, they couldn't get along. That's right? one of the things where I believe both those guys are pretty genius. I mean, you listen to the stuff that Stuart Copeland plays drum wise. Yeah. It's amazing. He's incredible. Oh, he's incredible. Stuff he was playing back then on a pop tune and all the sort of the way he was playing highly influential. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Like, what, 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 what about him? Like, when you, because like, I listen to the police, right. and I can hear him, and like, I, the, like, the cymbal playing is very intricate. Like, mm-hmm. this is where it gets. This is where I, I stumble when I try to talk about music. But right. Like, can you articulate what it is about Stuart Copeland that made him so influential? It's. I think. I think it's. It's um, his tightness. The way it. The way it comes across. It's just so precise and clean. And there's something about um, playing music that way that. Uh, that that's really appealing, especially to to guys like myself that that have sort of built a career on being precise. Well, and, but in somebody who can listen to music, just as you were talking about earlier, in a deconstructive way, right. like when you play the instrument for a living, or right. you're trying to, and you're sitting there in front of it or holding it eight hours a day, mm-hmm. noodling around, mm-hmm. uh, you can probably hear things in his playing that the average person can't. Well, I think that I think that that's interesting about any art and writing and everything like that. I mean, would you say that like I often think about this. Would you th- do you think that like um, take literary fiction? Do you think that do you think that like that there's a certain point where the the general public just can't understand where, where like you're writing for other writers or you're writing for people that have put in the work in terms of you know what I mean? It's the same a, a little think, a little bit I with the music. Are, sing, well, yeah, I, well, I think that they they always call them like a, 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 a writer's writer, right? You know what I'm saying? And I feel like the people who are often labeled like that. One of the one of the ways, or one of the things that I think characterize a writer's writer is that they really telegraph deep reading. Right. And I think other writers tend to tip their cap to that. When right. somebody's really done the reading, someone's right. really scholarly and smart and right. has gone deep and right. has done that reading work. Right. Um, but I also think like there's an element of ego to it because if you psycho you know psychoanalyze it. Right. You know, writers like to be able to be like, I like this writer because this writer 
read all these important books and right. telegraphed it in their work and I noticed it because right. I know who those writers are too. Exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly, exactly. And so like, it's like, I guess in music, if somebody's referencing, you know, deep jazz right, right. history in their mm -hmm. uh, choices or in their song titles or in mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, and then you as a jazz musician who's all similarly mm -hmm. schooled, you know, you're going to wind up tipping your cap to it and it's going to be um, self-reinforcing right. to, to recognize it. And I think it's a rarity when that type of, art that does have some sort of uh, referential material in it, let's, I guess, just call it that, um, when it does actually leak over into the general populace. You know what I mean? I think I think that's an amazing thing when somebody's able to make that happen. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's, it's hard, hard to, to do, man. And, yeah. you know, and I feel like I feel like as a writer and as a musician, I chose the two least popular direction. <laughs> you know, it's like I had I had a teacher say to me once, I said, Man, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write literary fiction for the rest of my life and he said, Congratulations, you picked the one thing that pays less than jazz. Yeah. I mean you know? well poetry. <laughs> exactly. There's you always could, poetry. could have been a poet yeah, you can always like take another step down <laughs> totally, into poetry. Totally. Um it's tough, but I mean like you've managed to eke out. You've been able to I mean getting studio work and mm -hmm. um I mean still music pays most of my living, you know what I mean? Uh, the writing thing has been an interesting, you know, especially with the book out, it's been an interesting, um, you know, I did a little book tour when it came out and it's a whole different vibe touring by yourself. Yeah. Going, showing up at a bookstore, it just feels so fucking lonely. Yeah. It's you know? not quite and as dynamic. It's not as quite being. as dynamic. And there's also another interesting thing, you know, with, um, you know, you could be doing like a pretty low paying jazz tour, but you, you, you know, you get up in the morning and you and the drummer are like, oh man, we played some shit last night. That was great. You know, this was amazing. <laughs> you get up in the morning on a writing tour and you're just like, oh, like this bagel, this bagel this is bagel stale. Stuff. Where are we? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different thing. It feels much, um, much different than I thought it would. It's hard to make loud noise in literature. It is. It's really it's hard it's to really make loud noise in music too, where you really, but I mean, like if you get 500 people into a room. Mm -hmm. And you play some music for two hours, right. like you're going to get a charge. Yeah, not even five hundred. Yeah, totally. You know, but just like having as long as people, they outnumber the band. That's yeah, the as only. long as they exactly, <laughs> as long as you're tipped. Exactly. But I mean, getting up in front of people and reading, and I mean, some people get off on it. I guess mm -hmm. I don't get off on it very much at all. I mean, I think there were some really good spots on the on the on the book tour. We uh, what's the bookstore here? Skylight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, over in Los Feliz. Yeah, yeah. So it, did, it was an amazing thing there. It was like packed. It was fun. So when the energy is similar to the music thing I find it's I understand it and I get it um, it's those ones where you show up and there's three people that you three people there and you're just like if you're lucky there's three people there and at and that point just, you're just like let's go get a drink yeah absolutely and and um, so it's so it's sort of interesting in that way I, uh, you know having a book out it's just been it's been a different uh, beast and, and making making noise about it is just just like sounds like you're throwing it into a void Deep, deeper than the world doesn't need another book man yeah, it's like really it's really amazing man and and uh you know i think as writers we we get to this point where we're just like i just got to get the book out i just got to have a book out i just got to have a book out and then the book comes out and i think that in a way there has to be some sort of just built-in um disappointment in a way <laughs> you have to be pre-disappointed you have to be pre-disappointed i think and i don't want to sound dark or clip i'm so that's happy. okay I'm we're so, in a garage exactly. dude. I'm so let's happy. go there i'm so happy i got a I got a book out, good reviews, and uh, it's awesome. But man, making noise about it is is it pretty near impossible? It's it's unbelievable. Well, you're on this show, right? Things, <laughs> just, are, just, things are about to change significantly. <laughs> uh, what about new? What about rock and roll music? Right. We play rock sometimes. Yeah. You've been out on stage with a rock and roll band before. Oh yeah. Versus a jazz band. Oh yeah, lots of times. Most actually, probably eighty percent. It what seems I do. like a young person going to Berkeley College of Music, wanting to meet girls. You right. want to be playing rock and roll. Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, it's still, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's great. You know, I, I sort of, I sort of, in terms of what I do, I try and be, uh, in terms of a bass player, I try and be a guy who, uh, who fits in and you would never know that I'm, that I'm also a jazz musician or whatever, you know, that, that's the thing that took the longest to learn. Do you get theatrical on stage when you're playing with a rock band? Like, Oh yeah. Sometimes you you like lean into the crowd. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, It's, 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 it's good. And you know, I, I get to, I've toured a little bit with, um, uh, my brightest diamond, really great. Um, Cheryl Warden, she's awesome. And she gets pretty crazy on stage and that's, it's always fun. And you know, I have to get over a little bit of a, Jesus, I'm 45. <laughs> <laughs> right. What you know, I got to watch out. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to pull anything with this okay, move. You this know? is interesting that you say this because I feel, I mean, rock and roll, obviously it's a young person's game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I might've said this on this show before. I know I've said it in my life, but, uh, the theatrics of rock and roll, the trappings of it, the, the clothing, the cultivation of a look. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that stuff, the image creation part of it, mm-hmm. the older I get, it just seems absurd to me. Yeah. I have no patience for it. Yeah. And then I look at a, I look at these bands who go the distance, you know, like I look at the Rolling Stones, I look at U2, mm-hmm. you know, these bands that are just chugging mm-hmm. into their, you know, septuagenarian rock mm-hmm. stars on tour. And, and you know what? More power to them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be ageist because I don't think you should be able to put a cap on when people can do their art. Absolutely. Um, but I look at, I mean, I guess that's just who Keith Richards is. He mm-hmm. just dresses like a pirate and wears the skull rings. And, <laughs> exactly. But doesn't he ever look at himself and be like, what the, I'm fucking 75. <laughs> no, yeah, I like, know. Why, I just put on I something. always wonder what those guys are wearing when they get up in the morning. Is that's what, what I'm is saying. It like, is it like striped pajamas? With he, like an... he wears the costume. I guess <laughs> you just are so used to it by a certain point. But the, the endurance that you have to have and like the willingness to just put up with all that, like I would have very little patience for it. Mm-hmm. And I guess there, you know what, there are some bands and there are some musicians who don't do that and they get up there in a t-shirt and jeans mm-hmm. and they're like you know resolutely not doing the costume thing in the image building you know like this is you know somebody actually i heard billy joel say an interesting thing one time which was uh you know when somebody asked him like dude you look like my accountant you know what i mean like like why don't you just like dress up a little more you know why don't you be a little more showman he's like being a musician is an, is enough of a is enough of a uh you know f you to society in a way so like I don't need to dress up special. I've already said I'm going to be a musician, and that's like a and that's and that's and that's enough. He's he's incredible that guy. I know. I, mean, I know. Um, his uh, hang on, I just dropped this. <laughs> he, uh, you know, there was an article in the New Yorker. That, was it Nick Palmgarten wrote a, a profile of him recently? Yeah, like yeah. The gig that he has. It's and, great. When like, he, he has, gets on a helicopter with him, yeah, he flies into yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the the guy's been around forever. He yeah. was a hero. I mean, for what I'm one of these white suburban kids who yeah. like like latched onto Billy Joel when I was in junior mm-hmm. high in like a very serious way. Dude, I can't even tell you. I mean, you're probably gonna like look at me and say, "Yeah, I, I draw the line at Supertramp," but I was into Supertramp. Dude, Supertramp was my favorite <laughs> band in high school. I can still I can still sing every single tune off of Breakfast in America. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's like uh, no, ridiculous. literally, listen yeah. to it in my car on the way to and from school. Yeah. Something about the logical song. Yeah. Spoke to me. There's something about Super Trip that's so weird that you it's say that. It's beautiful composition, man. If you it's listen prog to prog rock, it's prog rock, but it it has something that extends to uh, to the trained ear a little bit in a way. I guess that's what we're talking about. You know what I mean? I'm, a, so, I'm a sophisticated listener. Dude, you're, you're my instincts. You're, 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 I think you and I got into it at one point. Oh, uh, not got into it, but we had a discussion on Twitter about uh, the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Which I think I think that uh, uh, you know I I. I in terms of that, in terms of like a like an improvising band, yeah. where improvisation is like a big part of it. Sure, I think that you know I sometimes wonder like um, again, I think they're a band that like gets people uh, into it. You know, um, 
Um, do you like them? I can't remember. I'm not. I'm not. I, I think. I think for me, it's a little bit. Uh, it's like I said before. I think they can get people into it, but it's up to the people to do the work to take it to the next level. And I think it's to me, it just looks like a bunch of people standing around who just haven't done the work to take it to the next level. <laughs> well, see, this is the. Do, the, you know, the do you know what I mean? I do. Right. I do. I feel like I feel like the Grateful Dead gets conflated with its fans in a way that most bands don't right. because they have this like culty tribal fan base. Right. And so people look at them and they're like, oh, these people are filthy hippies and a lot of them are fucking mental midgets. And right, right. they're just like trust fund kids and like, you know, mm-hmm. SUVs traveling the country. And like th- some of these are very legitimate cr- criticisms, right. you know, and like I would say too, to be fair, that when I was 19 years old, uh, I was probably one of the idiots. I right. think, you, you know what I'm saying? I was just right. 19, but to me it was a great party. Mm-hmm. But I genuinely think the band is... Um, great as a cultural thing i think the the business aspect of the band i've always defended is like super far ahead of its time in terms of how it built its community the iconography of it the the way that it it played against and didn't even bother Mm -hmm. dealing with um, traditional business structures super admirable they never really sold out right you know and then they build up this fan base everybody's like dropping acid and getting tribal or whatever um Whatever you happen to think of that, most bands and most artists would kill for that kind of fan base. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think that um, a band that better maybe uh, exemplifies sort of what we're talking about is like a band like Fish, where it's just you know I like, never got into them. Well, but. I mean, yeah, and you listen to the as a musician, I listen to the improvisations, and they're just long and fucking noodly, and they don't mean anything. And it's just like, <laughs> and then and then so when people say, "Oh my God, did you hear that twenty-five minute guitar solo of like absolutely nothing?" You know, wasn't that great? It's hard for me to put on the happy face and go, oh, man, they're terrific. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's what I mean by, like, it's great that they're there and they uh, they get people into it. And, you know, um, uh, if you're on enough drugs, anything sounds absolutely. Cool. <laughs> and that's like one of the great business epiphanies of the whole thing. Right. It's like, oh, my God, if we get people on hallucinogens in this in this uh, mm-hmm. stadium. They're going to think they had a religious experience, even if we suck. Absolutely. Which they often did, especially in like the second half of their career. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like the shows that I was seeing in the 90s, like maybe like one out of 10 were halfway decent. Right. The rest of the time it was just like, uh, this is a train. You listen to the playback and you're like, this is, you're forcing yourself to say it was cool. <laughs> exactly. I was there, you exactly. know. But um, there's something about the spirit of it, you know, and there's also something about, Going to a show and being like, it could suck. It right. could be great. Yeah. It puts you on the edge of your seat. You don't know yeah. what you're going to get. Yeah. I don't know. There's something I sort of love about I, that. I also, I also think there's also an, you know, I remember somebody, uh, a student of mine took me to a, a White Stripes, White Stripes concert. Uh-huh. Jack, yeah. what's his name? Jack White. Jack White. I sound like such an old motherfucker right now. What's his name? <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> Jack, Jack, Jack Black. White. Jack, exactly. Um, you know, and, uh, and I was just like, this is Led Zeppelin. You know, it's like bad Led Zeppelin. And there's kids that are just like, you're like, this is just like Led Zeppelin. They're like, who? Right. You know, so it's like at some point, at some point you go from being the, the, uh, the educated jazz musician to being the crotchety old man, which I sort of feel like maybe that's, that's sort of the, the, the you precipice know, I'm, I'm walking. You I'm know? trying not to be, I'm trying not to be, I feel the same way. And it's like, you know, I remember being a young person and really, and, and even like into my late twenties and being like, don't be that dick. Mm-hmm. Don't be that guy who thinks nothing new is good. And that only the old stuff is good. And, you know, cause like I would have conversations with like the dude at the coffee shop or right. somebody just somewhere. You'd be talking to somebody who's like a little older right. who'd give you that talk yeah. about how the shit today. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh fuck you, dude. You're yeah. just old. Yeah. And it goes back to that whole, it goes back to that whole thing I was saying before about my first day at, at school and, and the teacher saying, you know, uh, you're never going to hear music 
unfortunately, you're never going to hear music the same way again. So I miss those days where I could just listen to something and just enjoy it for its presence and what it is, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, well, I, I, th- I think... Take, have, take enough drugs, man. You yeah, can get back there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't know. I, I sort of like... I find I, I, through my daughter, my daughter's four years is five, right? Yeah. I, you know, and she's sort of discovering music and and seeing her sort of like hear it with... with Ultimate, the ultimately kind of fresh ears. Oh yeah, it's really, it's really like the uninhibited way in which children sing and dance. Oh, you're just man, like, it's oh unbelievable. man, it's I was best. at Home Depot the other day and she was dancing through. People like stopped and clapped. It was like un- <laughs> unbelievable. And I was just buying fucking copper pipe or something. They, I don't know. Uh, they know how to live. They know how to live, man. It's crazy. We were in the car the other day and she said, uh, "I'm trying to explain to her band names. She doesn't really get the concept that a ba- there's a band and they they do different songs and they have a name, right? So the Rolling, St- the Rolling Stones are on. I'm like, honey, this is the ba- a band called the Rolling Stones. They were really, you know, qu- quite famous and da- you know, Daddy really loves them. And then, and then right after that, it was the radio. A uh, Journey came on, and I said, honey, this band is called Journey. And she says, no, no, Dad, th- these are the Rolling Rocks. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> it's those moments where you just like, you know, that's that's the kind of like sort of uninhibited listening and thinking that I would love to get back to. I hope I hope when I, like my kids are like in their adolescence and listening to whatever kids at that time are going to be into right that i'm able to uh come at it with an open mind me too me too i don't want to be the the dad who's like what is this garbage i mean how do you how do you sort of like uh quantify the fatherhood having kids and the whole writing career and all that sort of stuff i mean how does it equate for you because i know for me it's like it's 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 a lot of fucking work yeah you know yeah it's sacrifice i mean like you're, I'm just in it all the time. Yeah, it's nonstop. Yeah, uh, and there's like extreme fatigue and moments that drive you crazy and a lot more pressure. And uh, and then there's like extreme joy, like elation, it's and like yeah, it's like incredible. These like small moments, yeah. you know. Yeah, wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Like, I love being a dad. Well, you know, people always ask, like, friends that don't have kids, they're like, hey, you know, or, or couples, friends of mine that are saying, we're thinking about having a kid, you know, should we, what's it like, you know, should we have a kid? You know, and I always, I always, the only thing I can come up with is that I don't feel like it changed me internally on, like, a base level. Like, you know, things I'm an asshole about, I'm still going to be an asshole about, and yeah. things, you know, but what I say is that, is that it, it changes the edges of you, man. Like, like, you get to meet the edges of your personality that you never otherwise would. And I'm talking like the good edges and the bad edges, you know? Right. So if you want to have a life where you get to meet those people and because you will meet the worst fucking person version of yourself <laughs> you ever thought possibly imaginable and you will meet the greatest pers- version of yourself you ever thought imaginable. Then if you want to meet those people, then yeah, it's worth it. Well, it's, a, it's also, know? it's like you're going to be living a life of sacrifice on a more, consistent level than you otherwise would unless like you're somebody who's like working for like a gmo or you're like uh is that what it is? a gmo yeah I think what's, so. what's the acronym gmo sure i'll go with that you know what i'm talking yeah. about foreign aid <laughs> right if you're doing something like Dude, for, i'm a bass player don't yeah, <laughs> you work for human rights watch and like you know burkina faso or whatever you're right like, right right um unless you're doing something like that but do they get to really experience it, like what it is? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to create any, you know, sort of like. No, it's uproar. like it's to each their own. It's to each their own. Right. It's a. Di- it's just a different choice and a different life, and neither is better than the other. But like, you know, I think being a parent requires more personal sacrifice of time mm-hmm. and energy. Like the things that you want. Like if you want to focus on your thing and your stuff and what you want, mm-hmm. don't have kids. Yeah. 
you know, because yeah. I'm going to spend the weekend going to my daughter's soccer game yeah. and, you know, like feeding my son and putting yeah. him down for a nap. And I would love to be, you know, I would love to be napping and like reading books and shit and like writing. And, <laughs> no, no. But, you know, you, you live for them. And like, I wouldn't change that. Like, I like that. Mm -hmm. I like to have my life be about them and not me. Mm -hmm. I have enough of me. Do you, are you guys able to carve out some time? I mean, we, we, you know, break the bank just so that I can have like three days during the day like you know like where they're at in daycare for like oh yeah so, yeah, I, can, yeah. so I can actually get like some work done or we whatever. have to we have to yeah we have yeah. to work and do stuff and otherwise we're not going to have exactly. uh, a place to live right right <laughs> exactly. but like what's weird is that you know like a chunk of your money goes to childcare just right. so that you can work to make money to pay the child you know it's like it, it's, it's ridiculous it's ridiculous it's no tough. so I have to say you know because we moved out of town now I have to be really careful about what gigs I take it's like dude I can't take the hundred dollar gig because as much as I would love to do it um, you know, my wife's out of town. That means I got to get the babysitter. That's a hundred bucks right there. You Tolls just spend, are yeah. just going to cost me $80 to do your gig. And right. as much as I would love to do your gig, I, I have to say no, because it's just, I can't afford to do your gig. Right. You know, so it's like, it's become much more of a, uh, it's made me purposely have to be more selective about who I play with, which cuts down on the number of, a number of gigs, which cuts into your, your, your whole feeling of like, oh, not playing enough. You know what I mean? Like right. oh, can, that can be like a real slippery emotional slope, you know? Cause it's like, a, it's gotta be like a drug just to yeah, get up there totally. and do it. Absolutely. Keeps you going Still, all the time. Going to a, con like just going to a concert, which is something I do way too infrequently. Right. Every time I do it, I'm like, why do I not do this more? Because it gives me mm -hmm. a very good feeling mm -hmm. coming away from it. That communal mm -hmm. sense, the human energy exchange, yeah. that transfer, whether it's a stadium show or a club show, right. is uh, a real thing. Yeah. No, and I think, I think, I think you know, I, 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 there's always a big joke in the musician community in terms of, like, getting paid for gigs, you know. <clears throat> getting paid for a gig is not getting paid to play. We always say, you pay me to get to the gig, you know, because usually the travel time and especially when you're on the road, there's one sort of golden rule is there's never enough. There's never uh, as much time as you think. So you could be on the road and you're like, oh, you know what I'll do is I'll just learn this new tune. Uh, you know, we get to the hotel at three o'clock and sound checks at six. I'll get in the hotel room and I'll learn this tune or whatever. And then, you know, the fucking plane's late. The cabin doesn't pick up the band. Some dude loses something. And the next thing you know, you're racing to sound check and, and it's downbeat. So being a musician it's like anything it's like the logistics are just ridiculous you know so so it's like getting to the once you're on stage then it's that moment that you're talking about you know that's the best yeah it's so it's, it's even more of a relief almost in a way than uh than sort of going to than going to a concert and listening which is uh you know also its own kind of its own kind of uh you know thing well no it's a funny i was listening to an interview with keith richards or reading something maybe it was reading something he just had to, you know he's doing a book tour so mm -hmm. he's been doing media right <laughs> but he's like walking out onto a uh onto the stage for a show for a rolling stone show of course it's a giant stadium there's right. fifty thousand people screaming and uh the show's about to start and they're walking out and what is it ron wood yeah, yeah like he looks he turns to ron wood and he's like Ah, alone at last. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. that's how he feels. Yeah, it's the only, great, it's the only place where they're in control. Like everything's, yeah. it's their own universe. Yeah. They got it. Yeah. The shit surrounding the playing of music is just unbelievable. You know, I guess in a way the same with writing too, you know, the shit that surrounds it all, the book tours and this and that, it's the, 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 the beauty of sitting down and getting excited about something you're writing is, is pretty special. You know, I sure. think that's the thing we all come back to, at least for me. Um, it's like golf. It's like golf. it's a weird it's a weird uh, comparison to make, but if anyone has ever and I don't even play golf, right. but I have I have played the game of golf before. Right, 
And uh, everyone sucks at golf, basically, right. except yeah. for like a very few people. Right. And even to them, even they suck at even golf. Even they suck at golf. <laughs> but when you hit a good shot, yeah. when you just connect, yeah. it feels great. That's amazing. It yeah. feels, and you see the ball launch. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great feeling. Writing when you have a good moment or a good you know hour or two at the keyboard is the similar thing. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There was a there was a quote. I forget who it. It might be Pat Metheny again. He has some really great quotes. I think he said that like as you get to become a better musician, your uh, your bad what is it? Your bad nights become good, and your good nights become great, or something like that. Like you know the level that you're always sort of trying to attain this. I probably have that backwards and so, somebody can write in and say what the actual quote is, but you know, and the same with writing, you're always sort of trying to, to, to reach new heights and to get that sort of, that sort of fix. Right. Sure. And like anything else that fix, as you do it more and more becomes further and farther and harder to get. But once you get to that next level, whether it's ability wise or musically or writing or whatever, it's an amazing to be on that plateau. And the only thing you see from that plateau is the next fucking plot. Right, right. (laughs) So speaking of fixes, before I let you go, I mean, we didn't do like a VH1 behind the music on you. Like, have you ever gotten, like you're a musician, did you ever get Mm -hmm. deep into drugs or anything like that? Uh, Not a ton. You know, I was always, uh, you know. You seem pretty put together. Yeah, I mean, I feel, it was never a thing for me. I don't know why. I ask my parents that all the time because, you know, uh, there's three three brothers. It's never too late to start, Chris. Exactly. (laughs) I had a really bad experience with, um, with pot, you know, maybe 15 years ago where, uh, edibles, I no, it was, it was, I was living in Vancouver and some strong shit. Yeah, up and I Vancouver. was, you know, I was smoking a lot of pot back then. And I remember moving and somebody brought some just normal everyday Vancouver pot. And I smoked an entire joint and ended up in the hospital because I was just like panic, I, panic attack. Yeah. Pan, just like panic attack. And the woman I was with at the time, she freaked out. I mean, everybody, it was just like, was it laced? I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what it was, but, but you know, I sound like a total, you know, you pot, smoked a joint and went water. to the hospital. Yeah, was, the fuck, yeah, dude? Just, I know. You call yourself a but bass it, player, but, but it's Vancouver, you know, yeah. it's a whole other, it's a whole other level. Well, listen, the pot that people are growing in these like uh, hydroponics labs yeah. and whatnot, like it's different. It's a yeah. different beast than the stuff they were smoking at Woodstock. I think so. Yeah. I, I, it's not, it is. Right. I, <laughs> I mean, they have, it's way too potent. Right. This is something that I think is actually like, uh, speaks poorly of uh the marijuana horticulturalists Mm -hmm. the growers and whatever the business people and especially the people who are fighting for legalization Mm -hmm. uh bill maher was talking about this Mm -hmm. like get it right right like we're counting on you are they going to make this they're going to continue to have this be criminal if people are like being raced to the hospital after eating a cookie you know or if kids are getting hold of the candy that looks like normal gummy bears and like they're having like you know panic attacks and their parents are freaking out you know ruin it for everybody yeah so a don't make it look like the shit that kids eat. Right. And then B, get the dosages right. Right. Like, don't make, we don't need yeah, pot. You have an opportunity to figure it out here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, we don't need pot that, like, you have, like, a half of a hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you feel like you're having a heart attack. Like, mm-hmm. that, that's not fun. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I would say, in terms, of, in terms of me, I would say that uh, I'm much more prone to to drinking too much that would be like probably you know like you okay know, my that would be my thing but uh, the jazz musicians are all into heroin though weren't yeah, they that was their I think, thing i think they were it's, it's Cold miles, train, miles was yeah, miles. Miles, yeah yeah i heard miles davis was a dick he's a tough character you know when i was at berkeley there was a drummer um who was amazing this guy he was like 17 named john roberts he lives down in uh down in atlanta now yeah um but he was uh he was uh in the dorm and miles davis called him up on the payphone outside the thing you know hey man 
hey, I want you to like come play with my band. And then he died like a week later. No shit. Yeah. So he like got the gig with Miles or wanted Miles wanted to come, you know. But I just thought it was hilarious that Miles would like find out where this kid lived in the dorm and then figure out somebody's figured out the phone outside of his room and then you know yeah you know I'm probably, and i should say i should say too i i don't know if he was a dick i just heard right. he was a tough character he was a tough character his, his book actually um is a really great read you know his like autobiography yeah um there's sort of the definitive one and it's it's a really great read you should, you should definitely check it out it's it's um it's amazing the shit that he went through but he was also um he was a sophisticated. He was sophisticated, and he came from a, he came from a pretty well off family. Yeah, exactly. His dad was a I think his dad was a I want to say a doctor, a doctor of some kind or something. Yeah, yeah. and he lived in. I'm he had like horses place. and shit. He grew yeah, up yeah. in like he grew up like in upper I middle class. Say Minneapolis somewhere else. Or so, St. Louis or yeah, St. Louis, like, right, right, something like that. But yeah, no, he was like a he was a rich mm-hmm. kid, mm-hmm. and I think people would maybe come at him thinking he wasn't. Uh, as the real deal or as sophisticated as he was. And I think he just put people in their place. But man, you listen to the stuff that he played like in the sixties, like, uh, some of the, some of the, um, some of the live stuff and everything he's playing. Like, you know, people don't associate him with being like a real bebop trumpet player in sort of the, the, the classic jazz tradition. Um, but man, he is playing some shit and there's a reason why he was considered one of the greatest trumpet or now is considered one of the greatest trumpet players ever because, but at the time, people were sort of holding that to him in terms of like, you know, you, you didn't really live, you didn't come up the way, you know, you were supposed to, you know, so. You're not from the street not or. From the street. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit of that from what I can remember. But he, uh, man, there's some like live at the black, I think it's live at the blackbird. I forget what it's called, but he's playing some, the shit out of some bebop, man. It's like ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's the same thing. One of the most amazing things about listening to Coltrane, the more I. As I get older, my Coltrane uh, sprees tend to go longer and longer and longer, and I realize how heavy. You listen to some of that stuff in the 60s that he was playing, man. It's like it was recorded yesterday mm-hmm. in terms of what saxophone players are doing out there. And there's some amazing saxophone players in the world. Chris Potter, arguably maybe one of the greatest living ones at the moment. And he, it, you put it beside something with with Coltrane from the 60s, and you almost can't tell them apart. Mm-hmm. It's like unbelievable. What about Ornette part, Coleman? Yeah. Ornette was great. Same kind of thing, like like really Same pushing kind of boundaries and like experimenting and yeah. He he, I would say more Ornette in terms of like being technically a saxophone player. I would say more he was he was responsible for like opening up the genre in a way that that it previously wasn't. You know, um, in terms of just his technical ability on the saxophone, though, I, I you know I don't think it ranks up there with with guys like Coltrane and and. Uh, he was incredible. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable, um, and yes, uh, you know sometimes there's been points where I've had my tunes on in the background, and something comes on, some sort of deep Coltrane track that I haven't heard of the you know all the different things on my iPod or whatever, and I'll just be like, wow, who's this modern guy? It's just like unbelievable how far ahead of his time he was. Yeah, you know? and Miles has had the same thing. I still I've, can listen to. Um like flamenco sketches to me. Oh, so deep. It's so great. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Like makes me like, like very, it's like, it's like a piece of art that like sets me into, um, like a very good deep place. Well, here's a, here's an interesting, uh, fact that the kind of blue record, his kind of blue record still outsells every other jazz record every single day. It's a, it's a then, fucking then, stone then, cold then masterpiece. Every, every other, every, so you imagine all the jazz records coming, you know, you can probably count them all in one hand that come out in a year, you know, um, and you take the top selling version of whatever that is, whoever it is, 
whatever hot new jazz guy. Yeah. Kind of Blue still outsells at three to one every single day. Hey, every man. single day of the year for like the last, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But I mean, yeah. like it lives up. I don't think it's like a, I don't think it's an unearned or uh, unjustified popularity. Like this no. is the great album. Because again, it's got maybe the deepest vibe of any other jazz record. It's so deep. And, but it's also got the great players. Coltrane, yeah. Cannonball Adderley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. You know, you can run down the list. Absolutely. It's like an all-star list. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a reason why. But it's a, it's fun to think about records like that. Um, sort of like when you th- any kind of collaborative art. I mean, think about a great movie, a great album. Uh, I guess you think about a great book, though it's not necessarily collaborative in quite that same way. Right. Um, uh, you know, I guess there's editorial input and whatnot, but really it's a, a solo project. But mm-hmm. um, I'm always it's so fascinating for me to think like those sessions. Like, what was it? In the in the yeah. uh, water in yeah. that studio, yeah. uh, obviously the uh, it's the arrangements and the songs and they're great. But like, there's something that happens there, like mm-hmm. some weird like magic that happens. And I think there was also sort of to that record a, you know, if you listen to that band, uh, that you know, his mid '60s man, and after that record came out and sort of some of the live material, they're playing all the so you hear some of the tunes from that record, uh, you know, like a year on sort of after touring them all, all stuff, all of them are faster. They're playing more. They're way more inside the music. It's way more sort of, um, you know, because it was sort of the birth of modal jazz in a way, you know, where not a ton of ch- chord changes, but still 32 bar forms, but longer, longer, longer harmonic time on certain chords and stuff like that. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but it feels to me when I listen to Kind of Blue that it was, that they're, that they're still tentative with that. And they're playing this sort of tentativeness that translated into a kind of vibe. Hmm. Um, and because slowed you, them down, slowed them down in a little bit, and they're and they're playing this thing. So if you listen to them like a year on live, they're like playing the shit out of the tunes, and in a way, those tunes don't need to have the shit played out of right. them. Right. Well, see, that's the thing. Like mm-hmm. you just, it could be like the the they might have you know on a technical level, you would think, especially after touring them for a year, had a greater mastery of the material. Right. But the mastery of the material can actually be a disservice Absolutely. to the way the song sounds. So yep. It's like. Who knows, man? But the timing was right. The stars, right. The stars were aligned. Yeah, what a great record. Um, so fun talking with you, man. Thanks, man. You congrats, too. It's great. Congrats um, on the book. Congrats on all the music. Get some sleep. Oh, man. Well, I want to say, man, I love the uh, podcast. I listen all the time, and it's it's an honor to be on. And, and, and uh, you know, we didn't even get to it, but your whole thing that you, you and your wife went through having a kid, I mean, my wife and I did the very same thing, and I think that that message uh, speaks to a lot of people, and I think it's not something talked enough about and i think that uh it's great when you were doing all that it's yeah, great i can't shut up yeah. <laughs> it's, i think it's good yeah no i'm good i think know. it speaks to a lot of people man i think not only that topic but other things that you talk about on the show i think it's 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 important what you're doing well i appreciate it and uh i thank you for being here of course okay ladies and gentlemen that is chris terry go get his story collection his debut story collection is called how to carry bigfoot home it's available now from red hen press Supported debut author. Get that story collection. How to Carry Bigfoot Home, Red Hen Press. You can find Chris online at ChrisTerry.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at ChrisTerry. He's on Facebook. He's on YouTube. You can get a, a guitar lesson virtually via YouTube from Chris Terry. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. The Other People app, brand new iteration, now available for free. It's the official app of this podcast. It's the best way to listen. Uh, go get the app wherever you get your apps. You get the app on your device, and then the most recent 50 episodes are available f- uh, right there at your fingertips free of charge. So you get the most recent 50 for free. 
And then if you want to get at the deep archives, you want to stream everything, nearly 400 episodes, you sign up for a premium account right there within the app. It's very cheap. It's cheap as 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. Please do that. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. I'm going to go inside right now and watch the Democratic debate starting in 10 minutes. It's hot as fuck in my garage. Did I mention that? It's been like 100 degrees in October in Los Angeles. I'm over it. And I know, uh, you know what, come January, February, it's going to be like 70 and uh, I'm going to have nothing to complain about. But right now, I'm complaining. It's too hot. To, it's too hot this late in the year. Please remember that Nellie Sachs died on the day of Paul Salon's funeral and that Caesar, according to Plutarch, was stabbed 23 times at his death. Uh, that's it for now. Thanks to Chris Terry. Go get his book. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it, as always. And I will be back next week with another conversation with another writer. And uh, I will deliver it to you via the Internet, via whatever, you know, digital uh, modes. Uh, you know what I'm saying. <laughs>